So you may not know this, but I have a five-year-old son named uh, Spencer, and Spencer is a kindergartner now. And every day, I put Spencer on the bus at about 12.40, and every day I pick him up across the street from the bus stop at about 3.40. And my dad was talking with me the other day about these hand signals because I look out the window, he and mom were there watching the kids and they went over to my, my dad went over to get him off the bus and I see him in a lengthy exchange with the bus driver. And then he comes back across the street and I know my dad well enough to know that it was a frustrating interaction for him. And he said, you didn't tell me about the hand signals. And I said, what hand signals are you talking about? And he said, I don't know, she just, they have some hand signals or something that they make the kids go through, and apparently he didn't do it and I didn't do it, and, and she got mad. And so I go out there the next day, and I decide that I'm going to be aware of these hand signals. And Spencer gets off the bus, and we stand there, and, and I look back, and the bus driver is doing this. And I thought, you have the wrong idea. And, and so I just kind of waved back and went to go across the street. And out of the corner of my eye in my peripheral vision, I see like, like this, you know, these other hand signals which tend to represent frustration. So I walk back around to talk with her. And it turns out that when you get your kids off the bus... You are not allowed to cross your own street. And once you get permission to cross your street with your child, you have to look back to the bus driver to then get permission to walk to your house in your driveway. I didn't know this. So, so it goes something like this, apparently. She gives the Third Reich, and then... And then she will do this. And once she does this, but you have to maintain laser-focused <laughs> eye contact on, on, this, on, on the bus driver. And when she does this, you're allowed to go to the front of the bus. And then you look both ways. And then you're allowed to cross your street with your son. But you have to look back and make additional eye contact for a period decided only by her. And then she will nod her head, and then you can take your son and walk into your house. <coughs> Did not know this. I, I, you know, I, I missed that meeting. And, and, um, and, and what, what that has, has helped me to realize is that I am now in a very different culture. The culture of the Poindexter household has changed and will continue to change through about 2026 while our children go through the public school system. I didn't think much about my culture and how my culture would change and be affected by having kids in the school until orientation. And now I realize there are things like bus etiquette and and it's PTO, not PTA. 
And um, I, I also am learning about things like homework. And, and I've had to have conversation with Spencer about, you know, if Daddy's not out there at the bus stop, there's a key in your bag and, you know, how to let himself in and call uh, my phone or look for me in case I fell asleep on the couch or something like that. And, and um, I had to have the stranger danger talk with him. And it has just brought this whole new culture into our household. And when we talk about the book of Leviticus, I think it's important to take kind of a 30,000-foot view, an overview of the whole thing and realize what this book really is, is the day that God reclaimed his culture on earth. Leviticus is God stepping down to a humanity that had gone astray and continuing the redemptive process of humanity by giving us his culture. Now, this culture would one day more perfectly and most perfectly be, be, um, be realized through the life of Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus was God in the flesh and that he is God. And so when we look at Jesus in the New Testament, we see God's culture, his lifestyle on display. But God decided that before we could handle that, we would need centuries of of something that came before that in the form of teaching and rituals through the book of Leviticus to help us appreciate God's culture on display through the life of Jesus. So what I would like to do with this first week of this series is give you an overview of this culture and what we can expect from the book of Leviticus for two reasons. First of all, so that you guys here today, at the beginning of this journey, have an an idea of what we're going to learn about. I think it will help frame the discussion over the next few months. But also, if there are those who come into this series in the middle of this series, they can get this CD and get an overview of the series and, and kind of get a flow of where we're headed and where we've been and things like that. So let me take the first part of the first half of this sermon and, and talk about life leading up to the giving of the law or the writing of the book of Leviticus, or more specifically, the day Moses spoke the words of Leviticus to the Jewish people. I think that's a good place to start so that we understand what's happening in history when, when, this, when this event happens, because Leviticus is in many ways an event. We'll start off in Genesis chapter 3, and this is the story of the Garden of Eden. Major theological... By the way, I would encourage you to bring your Bibles and mark them up and write in them and things like that, because we're going to use them a lot. In, in the coming months as we go through the book of Leviticus. Today I'm just going to do some overview. Um, we'll start off in the Garden of Eden. And we see God creating humanity. And God creates this paradise, this garden. And Adam and Eve are there in this garden. And there is intimacy with God. And there is what seems to be face-to-face relationship with God. And the Bible says that mankind doesn't even really have the ability or the know-how to do evil. In other words, we are completely innocent. But 
when there's a husband and a wife naked in a paradise, there are only a few activities to engage in, one of which is eating. And God tells Adam and Eve, as he tells them what's available for them to eat, he says, this tree right here will bring you the knowledge of evil. You will know the difference between right and wrong, and you will be able to sin and rebel. So do not eat from this tree, or humanity will be altered. So they eat from the tree, because that's just what we do. You give us a rule, we break it. And this is what happens. This is in Genesis 3.23. Again, we're talking about major theological principles to understand here. So the Lord God banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. This is because they had sinned. To work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, which is like a big deal angel, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So what happens here, and this is an important um, theme in the book of Leviticus, God cannot tolerate or coexist with sin. He is holy and pure, and he cannot be around sin. And when sin entered humanity, God then needed to separate. And so God banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and that face-to-face relationship is done. So Adam and Eve begin to populate the earth. And generations come and go, and we get to Genesis chapter 6. So first major move is mankind and God have a major wedge, a major separation because sin is now entered into the world, and man now has the ability to think up evil ways. And in generations following this moment, we get to Genesis chapter 6, where God looks at all of humanity, sees so much wickedness and depravity that the Bible actually says he repents. It's like he truly regrets and feels sorry for creating man to the point where he almost maybe even feels like he's done something wrong. Now, don't over-apply that, but that word repent in the language used is strong language to show regret from God because humanity is in such poor state of being. And the Bible says that God found Noah and his family to be righteous, maybe even just Noah. Like there's one guy left on earth that gets it. And he destroys the world with a flood. And then Noah and his family repopulate the earth. So first move, man sins, separates from God. Sin enters the world. Second move, God repopulates through Noah because things had gotten so bad. By Genesis chapter 11, very interesting uh, situation. The world is repopulated. People are far from God, not seeking Him again, not putting trust in Him or wanting Him as a part of their life. But humanity is doing very, very well in terms of progress. 
Human beings have figured out how to work together and are making advancements in such a way that God realizes it's not going to be very long before they feel like they don't even need me. God not wanting us to face death apart from a relationship with Him. Very important, very important theme in Scripture. We don't want to die apart from God. So He intervenes. And at a place called Babel, God scatters the nations. And He confuses the languages. And He creates, a civil, he creates civilizations to where we could no longer rely on ourselves and would then, therefore, need Him. Very important moment in the history of the world because, you know, if God wanted to just kind of throw up His hands, that would have been a good moment to do it. See, they don't even think they need me. I'm just going to go on to the next thing, but He doesn't. He is so desperate for a relationship with you and I that He actually scatters the nations so He can bring it about. Next move. Genesis chapter 12. This is the first time that God actually tells us He is going to have a nation of people to bring His culture to. Genesis 12.1 The Lord said to Abraham, or Abram, he would later become Abraham, Leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. All the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Very important moment here. Not only because God says, I'm going to make a nation of people who understand my ways. But more importantly, God says, my culture is a culture of blessing. These were people who were pretty clueless about God. He comes to Abraham and he says, I want you to know <coughs> you're going to be the forefather of my culture, of my way of life. And ultimately, my way of life is a way that blesses the world. Now, it's unfortunate that religion today is seen as this exclusive we think we're better than you kind of system. When God's hope, back from like the 12th chapter of Scripture, was very clear. This is not exclusive. This may be an exclusive lifestyle, but this exclusive lifestyle is inclusive. The whole earth is to be blessed through this. We are the people of blessing, not the people who like burn other people's religious books in anger. We bless the world. We don't tear down. We build up. God's blessings are ultimately to bless others. And when we look at the book of Leviticus, we are going to see a, a pretty um, comprehensive structure that God sets up. But ultimately, that structure is to bless those around the people, not to be this inclusive, superior, self-righteous club, which it had become and continues to become even after the life of Jesus. Okay, next major move here. God comes to Abraham, life goes on, 
the Israelites grow as, as, as a people. Um, the Israelites were named after Israel, who was Abraham's grandson. And, and um, um, the Israelites find themselves in slavery. They grow to like a million. Okay, but they're in slavery in Egypt. Very famous, you know, Ten Commandments deal. Uh, the, the movie, Mo, God selects Moses. God kind of shoves him in there against his will even. Says, you will go and you will do this. You will go to Pharaoh and, and you will tell him to let the people go. And, and then God sends these progressive plagues. And all of a sudden now, Moses finds himself leading like a million Israelites in the wilderness. You think God called you to do something scary. Can you imagine that moment? Moses is now leading a million people or so in the wilderness, and they don't know much about God or his ways. They know that the God that freed them from Pharaoh through these plagues, they know that he was the God that came to their forefather Abraham. And that's about it. And then Moses receives these words from God that we get in the book of Leviticus. And out of this kind of culture of chaos comes a greater understanding of who God is and what he wants from these people. This is why Leviticus is so important, because they were spiritually clueless. And if you find yourself spiritually clueless, I think that this book can help you see God's love and that he, he wants them to understand that there is a certain way of life in a certain culture. And if we live by these things, we have relationship with God. Let's move on now because I want to hit a couple of major themes in the book of Leviticus and then we'll close. The first major theme that I think you'll find, and again, a, a lot of this is, is, is for, for you maybe to return to in the middle of the series or for those joining in in the middle of the series to have an overview of the book. One of the first major themes you're going to see through the book of Leviticus is that God wants to interact with you. A lot of us may go through life wondering whether or not God cares about us. We, we think that he might care about, you know, Obama or about the Middle East, or about the different crises in the world, or about murder, things like that. But does he care about us intimately? Is he interested in your marriage, and your finances, and your parenting? I think what you'll find in the book of Leviticus is that when God came to the Israelites that day, he wanted them to understand that this God that they knew very little of was a God who desired deep involvement in their life. One of the ways we see this is through the Tent of Meeting. We're going to read a lot about what's called the Tent of Meeting or the Tabernacle. This was a massive symbol for Israel. In the center of the nation, as they traveled, was to be this giant tent. And it was understood that this is where you went corporately to meet with God. Now what this shows is a symbolic representation that God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that brought us out of Israel or out of Egypt, is a God who dwells in our midst. <clears throat> this is important because this wasn't something that was all that common back then. God wanted these people to know that he was a God who would dwell among them. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and they could interact with him. 
But there was something more that they had as, as this symbolic representation because there was a separate, there was a second tent of meeting. And this was a tent on the outskirts, kind of out of the way. And this is where Moses would go to be intimate with God and hear from God. And what this shows us through symbolism, God wanted the people who followed him, and if you want to follow God, God wants you to know that not only is he here corporately, and not only does he desire us to corporately focus on him in the tent, so to speak, but they would have seen a separate, more private encounter with God as Moses went into his tent of meeting to encounter the God of the universe and hear from him. And I think what God is doing is establishing a culture of his followers coming to him corporately, but also coming to him on a more intimate level privately. And I hope that you either experience now or will soon begin to experience private intimate conversation with the God of the universe because that's what's revealed through the book of Leviticus. And then one of the things we're going to talk about right out of the gate starting next week are these offerings. There were sin offerings and guilt offerings and fellowship offerings and, and burn offerings and wave offerings and drink offerings. And, and there were always these offerings happening at this altar in the tabernacle. And there was always this smoke and this smell and this incense going out and what God would say is this shows you the constant interaction between people and God and you could see it and you could smell it and at times you could taste it the symbolic presence and realness of relationship between man and God on this altar going 24-7 So the first major theme that we're going to see is that God is a God who absolutely loves our interaction. The second thing we're going to see is that God is an involved parent. So as these people are listening to Moses saying, this is what life is like with this God who brought us out of Egypt, who they didn't know well, one of the things that would have become very apparent is this is a God who has expectations and who wants to be involved and who parents us with guidelines and boundaries. There are a lot of guidelines and boundaries in Leviticus. There just are. And I hope what we can see is that that means that God is interested in our well-being and wants us to do well and be safe. And we recognize that a big part of parenting And a big part of love in parenting is giving and disciplining around boundaries. You guys who were there last Wednesday at Plum Creek bore witness to my parenting on display. There were about, I don't know, 40 of us there packed in this little pavilion in that little time of of worship last Wednesday night. And it it was a great time. And there were a handful of little ones at the playground right next to this pavilion in Plum Creek. Now, my two-year-old son, Elijah, about halfway through, is fighting the babysitters over there to get over to me. And I just said, I'll just just send him over. He can sit with me. So he comes running up to me. And by now, everybody in the pavilion, even though we're worshiping, is kind of watching. Because, you know, cute little Elijah comes running over. And and he, he stays with me for a minute, and then he goes to run back. 
And I see what's going to happen here. And I said, Elijah, you can't go back and forth. Either sit with daddy and mommy or go to the playground. And he said, playground. Okay, I'm going to walk you over. Walk with me. I want to make sure that, you know, the, the, the babysitters see him and that he's back there. He makes it back there. So I start walking with him. And he says, no, I go. I do. And, and actually for him, he says, I am. I am. And that means I want to do it. He says, I am. And I said, well, I need, I need to walk with you to make sure that you're, I am. You go in the house. He wanted me to go back in the pavilion. And, you know, and he's yelling. And by now, all of, you know, Polaris that's there is, is watching this demonstration of defiance and parenting. So I went back into the pavilion. And, and, and I'm standing there and I'm watching him. And he's doing this. You know, he's, and he's, he's working his way over there because he's seeing my involvement as a total hassle. I'm wrecking his fun, challenging his independence. Whereas for me, I want to make sure he stays out of the lake and that he actually gets to where he needs to go safely. There is nothing that makes us more irritated as parents than seeing other parents who don't take their responsibilities seriously and don't give guidelines to their children. We see that as a lack of love, right? But there is nothing that children hate more than the fun-killing, overbearing, overly cautious act of parenting. Well, what we see in Leviticus is an overly cautious, overly caring God of the universe who sets up guidelines for us. And we revert to two-year-olds. Stop killing the fun. I do it. I am. But I think what we'll see, and I think what the Israelites saw, is a God who is desperately, uh, desperately wants to be involved and wants to, to guard the health, spiritual, emotional, and physical health of his people. Another major theme that we're going to see in, in the book of Leviticus <clears throat> is God desiring for his people to live lives of generosity. It's amazing that even from ancient times, when God brings his culture to the people, one of the bedrock, foundational principles... You follow God means you are a generous person. Listen to this from Leviticus 19. I think one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by the name, by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. In other words, pay him right now. 
You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's not a bad society that God's bringing there. I mean, life would be pretty good if everybody just lived by those ten ideas in Scripture. That's a, that's a pretty good society. And notice that generosity there. Don't use everything you have. Save plenty for those in need. Be kind to each other. Love people. So you're not just being a good citizen, you're actually called to love people actively. That's one of the major themes that we're going to see in the book of Leviticus. We're also going to see this major theme of the difference between holiness and common. There's holy and there's common. There's of this world and typical, and there's of God and holy. And a key passage is Leviticus 19. Moses simply says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, you may have lived however you wanted to before, but now you're mine. And if you want relationship with me, you will be set apart from the world and the common because I am set apart from the common. And we're going to learn how to do that in Leviticus in very practical ways. There's this mantra for this series in understanding the book of Leviticus. And and I actually, I I wrote it out. I think it's going to be up there. Um, Leviticus is overwhelming. And that's because God's holiness is overwhelming. And when we understand how overwhelmingly holy God is, we'll understand how overwhelmingly sinful we are. And only then can we understand how overwhelmingly loving and gracious our God really is. Paul says it this way in the New Testament. Law was added so that the sin might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, when we see the holiness of God, it is overwhelming. But the whole reason God wanted us to see how holy He is, is so that we can see how far from Him we are. Not to exasperate us with guilt, but so that we can understand the volume of grace that God extends our way through Jesus. And that's the last thing I want to touch on. What Leviticus really is, in its entirety, is a setup for us to understand what life is like in Christ. Leviticus is just a foreshadowing. It's just a taste of what fulfillment came through Christ. So that now, as we look through the symbols, like the offerings, like the smoke, like the house, God says, I dwell in this house. Then through Christ, God says, you are my house, and I dwell in you. 
we see symbolism of atonement where the Israelites constantly were having to get this unblemished, perfect lamb, put their hand on its head, slice its throat open, mutilate it. This was a part of their culture. God was saying, look how ugly sin is. And look at the cost that has to be paid to pay for sin. So that when we see the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ on the cross, being crucified, we can more fully understand this was the final sacrificial lamb. And now we don't have to do all of that ritual because Jesus paid it all. And we will so much more appreciate life in Christ by walking through the book of Leviticus. I know we will, no matter where you are in your walk with God. You will gain appreciation for what it means to live with Christ.